confession about who Jesus is. He was the first person to really kind of hone in on Jesus. You're not like everybody else. You're the son of God. You're the Christ. And Jesus says, that's right, I am. But then when Jesus explains to them what that means, namely that he's going to have to go to a cross and die, that's when the disciples are completely thrown off. And Peter especially kind of takes him aside and says, you don't know your Bible, Jesus. Let me explain it to you. And so Jesus is now in this moment in his ministry where he's having to go beyond just telling them who he is. He's trying to explain why he is who he is and what he is going to do and how all of the history of the human race has been building this moment. So what Jesus does is what happens today. He's going to lead them and have a moment with just three of the disciples, just three of the disciples. And he's going to reveal to them that they have a glory problem, a glory problem. This is something that Paul Tripp talks about. He's a pastor that I deeply admire. He talks about how as people, as human beings, we have a glory problem. We don't understand God's glory. We don't understand it. We don't have a grid for it. We don't know what to do with it. And we really don't know what it means to us and how much of a difference it's meant to make and intended to make in our lives. Because you and I, we were created for God's glory. God designed us to know him and walk with him and to experience his glory. But what we have done as people, or what we tend to do as people, is we trade the glory of God for much lesser glories. And we look for for glory and significance in other things. And I want to, just at the outset, because glory is quite a religious kind of theological word, I want to explain what I mean when we talk about that today. Glory comes from a Hebrew word, kavod, which means weight. So whenever the Bible talks about glory, it's really talking about the significance or importance of something. So a a king who had great glory is a king that was very important, very significant, had a lot of influence and impact. And when we talk about God's glory, we are talking about the one whose significance and importance and weight in all of the universe is so far beyond anything else, beyond any king who's ever lived, beyond any inventor beyond any great man or woman in history. Uh, and so now we're going to see what that really means. We are going to come and we're going to see that when, when highest glory, when true glory comes and drops into our midst, we don't understand it and we don't know what to do with it. So let's read this passage from Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. This is what it says. After six days, that's six days right after Peter's conversion, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they were no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So I want to talk about three things that this story teaches us. First, I want to talk about the presence of glory. Second, the purpose of glory. And lastly, the person of glory. So let's talk about the presence of glory. Now, I love a good uh, action film, adventure story, and these days, you can't really have a good one of those unless it's got tons and tons of CGI. Uh, but what's always a little bit deflating for me is whenever you see the behind-the-scenes pictures of all these great movies. I've got a couple here. So right there, that's the, the Incredible Hulk on the left, much less impressive when it's just a guy in a weird suit looking up at a camera. And then Gollum on the bottom. Now, Gollum is a really scary creature. If you've seen Lord of the Rings, I, Gollum freaks me out with his little voice and all of his weird things that he does. 
Although I do like his hairstyle, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> but uh, when you see the actor there who plays him, it's just so much less striking, right? Like you would never be afraid of that guy in that blue uh, motion capture suit. But this is, this is how they achieve all these amazing things in these movies. These incredible things that we see is usually there's, a, there's a, a human being behind it with some kind of elaborate illusion through computer imagery. Now, God is very different than that, right? And the reason I put these up is because sometimes we might be inclined to think that behind all of these stories that we read about in Scripture, behind all of these amazing accounts of Jesus, there's some kind of simple explanation, that it's some kind of trick. And in fact, a lot of people in Jesus' day believed that as well. They believed there was some kind of explanation behind how he could do the things that he could do and why he could go into these places and heal people, walk on water. These stories were coming from somewhere. But the truth is, there is, there is no illusion behind it. If in these movies we're deflated because when we peel back the curtain, we find out that it's not really as great as it first appears. The opposite is true with Jesus. When Jesus peels back the curtain to what's really there, we don't, we don't understand it. It's mind-blowing. It's terrifying. It's overwhelming. That's the experience that these disciples had. In the start of this account, we're told that it was six days after Peter's confession. And he takes Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. That word just means he was changed. It's actually the, the way we get the word metamorphosis from. Like when we talk about butterflies, Jesus was changed before them. And his clothes became radiant and intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. See, Jesus is giving us and his disciples a peek behind the curtain, and we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with it. We're not prepared for glory. This is probably Mount Hermon because as we talked about last week, they were in an area called Caesarea Philippi. It was an area where there was a lot of different religious schools of thought, different gods, different uh, rituals, different kind of sects and cults and all kinds of different things. So Jesus is still generally in this area and he says to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, I want to take you with me to pray on this mountain. Come with me. Just you three. Come with me. We're going to pray together. So off they go to pray. Now, that would be the point at which I became suspicious because the last time Jesus had just these three guys, he raised a little girl from the dead. So if I was Peter, James, and John, I would be like, yes, what are we going to do? What's about to happen? So they go up this mountain. They're praying. They're praying. Just nothing special, no special ritual. They are just praying. And right then, the greatest event in human history occurs. And when I, mean, when I say that, I really mean that. Behind maybe only Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection is this event, one of the greatest events in human history, where God himself is revealed to people like you and me, regular Joes. Jesus peels back the curtain, and he reveals his full glory to his disciples. And they don't know what to do with it. John Calvin says that this is a temporary exhibition of his glory. Because in most cases, Jesus didn't look like God, right? And the reason for that is we're told in Philippians 2, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes that he laid aside his majesty and his glory and he took on the, the form of a servant. But Jesus never ceased to be God in all of his life. As Christians, what we believe, it's very confusing, but it's a miracle, is that when God came to earth in the person of Jesus, it wasn't God putting on a human suit and pretending to be like one of us. He really united all of the glory of his deity with all of the simplicity of humanity. He put those two together. They were wrapped up tightly in Jesus. And so most often when people encountered Jesus, they encountered him in his humanity. 
But what Jesus is doing in this moment is showing his disciples, I'm not just a man like you. I'm far more than that. I'm the God-man, the one come to save you. And there's three things about this experience and this, this vision that they have that I want to point out. First of all, it's beyond description. You ever been in one of those moments where you've seen a beautiful mountainside or you've, uh, you've seen an incredible picture and you are just at a loss as to how to describe it? A few years ago, well, probably a long time ago now, there was a, there was a guy on YouTube who saw a double rainbow. Um, hopefully one or two of you have seen it and it's not just me. But it, it's, this, it's a really entertaining video because it's this guy who just can't find the words to describe what he's looking at. And it's kind of, I get that sense of that's what's happening here, right? Mark gives us a few things to try and describe it. But I think probably in, in actuality, what the disciples were seeing and are now describing to Mark is, is just something that was beyond description, right? Some of the things that he says is he was radiantly white, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach uh, his clothing. It's, it's like he's trying to say, I, I don't know what it was like, but the closest estimation of it that I can give you is that his clothes were so white, I don't know who made those clothes because no one on earth could bleach them like that. What he's really saying is it, it wasn't just that they were white, it's that they were irradiating light. Right? This is something incredible, something unfathomable. It's pure, it's perfect. Second thing, it was astoundingly unique. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 17, he tells this same story. And what he says in his words is that Jesus was, was radiating light, that it was coming out of Jesus. Now, there was times in biblical history where people had had an experience with God, that encountered God, uh, and it, there was a lot of light. Uh, and there was a guy in particular, Moses, you may have heard of him. He comes up later in this story. He encountered God on a mountain. And after he had been in the presence of God, not even looking directly at him, but just around him, he would reflect God's light. People would see God's light in his face. Again, another moment where people, I'm sure, are just trying to describe in, in the best way they can what they saw. But this story is very different to that one. This is unique. This is not someone reflecting light. This is not someone who appears to have been in the presence of light. This is someone who is themselves the source of the light, radiating light. Lastly, it's unquestionably divine. What is unmistakable in this moment is that Jesus is not just a man. He is God. He is God. He's a few things that, uh, this is John. Remember, John was on the mountain with uh, the other disciples when this was happening. He was one of those three people. And this is what he writes in John 1. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The author of Hebrews says this is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The, di the disciples did not expect any of this. They had no idea what to do with it. Remember again, Peter has made the confession. He knows that Jesus is not like other people, but he's still not all the way there yet because when they see this, they have no idea what to do with it. No idea what to do with it. And here's the question I want to ask for you this morning. Are you prepared for the radiance of God's glory? Are you prepared in your heart to walk with, to follow, and to know the one who is himself the source of all light and glory in the universe? That's a big thing to ask, I know. But how many of us come into church each week and we read our Bibles and we pray and really in our hearts and our minds, who we are praying to is not this God who appeared on the mountain to his disciples, but it's what I like to call a Diet Coke version of Jesus. 
Right? There's just one calorie. It's not enough. It's a Jesus who is so much less like God, so much less glorious, and far more like us. And we worship a Jesus who is often petty and whiny and trivial, a God that is far too concerned about earthly politics and national politics, a God who is concerned about school curriculums and a God who is in danger of being made irrelevant if we don't help him find the right things to say, if we don't change and edit things about him. We don't talk really, generally speaking, about a God who is so glorious that he takes our breath away and takes our words away. Do you, know, do you know what it really means to say that God is glorious? We're not just saying that he's powerful, right? If we go back to that, that meaning that he's significant, he's important, we're saying that when God is glorious, he's beautiful, he's wondrous, he's good, he's kind, he's faithful, he's generous. All of these things make up his glory. It constitutes what we mean when we say he's glorious. We're not just saying he's powerful, we're saying he's good. And that he's worth beholding. He's worth capturing our attention and our mind above everything else in our lives. More than all the other things I'm chasing, am I chasing God's glory? Is that the thing in my heart and in my life and in my job and in my family and in my parenting? Is that the thing that I'm saying, I want to behold that? I want to look at that because it's more beautiful and wondrous than anything else I could imagine. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're there. I have to admit, there's a lot of my life I'm not there. I don't think of a God who is so wondrous and beautiful that I want to lay everything else aside and just look at him and behold him and follow him. It's part of our glory problem. We need to let Mark's gospel grab us and change us and show us a Jesus who is not diet or light, not glow stick Jesus, but the radiant and glorious king of the mountain. Jesus' glory, though, it's not just about his identity, it's about his purpose. His purpose. Uh, Janae uh, is a fan of going to art galleries. Uh, I am not. And so when we go to art galleries, typically, if you've been, you know that the culture and the expectation is don't talk very much, right? You just walk around and behold the beautiful things, keep, keep your mouth closed. Unfortunately, I'm an idiot. And so <laughs> when I walk around an art gallery, I can't just stand and look at a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh. I have to talk to Janae about it or ask her questions about, well, what's this and what's this? And I can't keep my mouth closed. And, and there's so many people around me that just get grumpy, right? Because I'm ruining the experience of beholding this beauty, this unique beauty. Well, in this story, we have an Andrew uh, who can't keep his mouth closed. <laughs> and he gets a little too excited when some things happen. But what happens in this moment is the purpose of God's glory is revealed. Let me read this to you. This is verses four through six. It says, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So what's happening here is as this is unfolding, something even more miraculous happens. There appears two more men with Jesus, Elijah and Moses. Elijah and Moses, two incredibly important figures in the history of the Bible, in the history of the Jewish people, really in the history of the world. Moses, of course, was the person who led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt. He was the person that God revealed his glory to. He was the person that God gave the law to, the law that would then guide and form the, uh, the Jewish people together. It would form the basis of their entire religion. And then also there was Elijah, 
Elijah, who surprisingly, as significant as he is in the story of God, he actually just gets a handful of chapters in the book of First Kings and Second Kings. But Elijah, the reason why he's so important is because he is considered the greatest of all of God's prophets throughout history. He was a man that did almost as many miracles as Jesus, and a, a one who was called to tell people about who God was to the, the kings and the, the evil and corrupt governments of the time. This is who Elijah was. And so both of these figures who had become the, the goal of all of Judaism were there on the mountain with Jesus, talking with Jesus. And what are they talking with Jesus about? Well, in Luke's gospel, again, he's going through this same story, and this is what he says. He says, as they were praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what are they talking with Jesus about? His death. Moses and Elijah, the two greatest people in all of Jewish history, show up on a mountain, and the conversation that they want to have with Jesus is, we know what's about to happen, you're about to die. And I think that this is how Peter and the other disciples figured out who these men were, because they overheard this conversation, and they figured out, this is, this is Elijah and Moses. Jesus is talking with Elijah and Moses. He's talking with the one who gave us the law, the greatest prophet in all of history. Here they are on the mountain. three things that I want to pull out of that is first is this is that Jesus's glory is connected to his death Jesus's glory is connected to his death what makes Jesus so significant isn't just who he is that's obviously incredibly important but it's what he has come to do remember so six days ago Jesus has told his disciples if you want to call me Christ what that means is that I'm going to be arrested I'm going to be abused I'm going to be beaten and then I'm going to die Jesus' glory is connected with his death. That's why these two figures appeared and talked with Jesus. Second reason they appeared is because Jesus' death is connected to the law and the prophets. Jesus' death is connected to the law and prophets. What I mean by that is that all of history, everything that God had done throughout history until this point, through men like Moses, through men like Elijah, had been building towards this moment. Every rule and law that God had ever given Moses was about Jesus. Every prophetic word that Elijah uttered in his own ministry and every miracle that he performed was pointing towards a savior who had come like Jesus and do what Jesus had come to do. Everything was always pointing towards his death. Jesus actually says as much after his resurrection. He talks with his disciples and he, he points out through how all of the law and the prophets, all of the stories of Moses and Elijah and Abraham and everyone else, all of them were pointing to this one moment. And lastly, uh, the law and the prophets are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. So Jesus is taking everything that ever built their lives on their whole religion and he's saying, this was always really about me. I haven't come to do away with it. I've come to fulfill it. All the hope that you once found in Moses' law, all the hope that you once found in Elijah's miracles, all of that was really what I'm going to offer you at the cross. And how does Peter respond to all this? Let's make tents. <laughs> it's a weird thing to say, Peter. I'm very glad that you follow Jesus because I'm weird too. But he comes and he... And, and I don't really... 
blame Peter for saying this because he can't, he doesn't know what to say. We're told he's terrified, right? He's just seeing two figures that he thought were long, long dead. I mean, Moses lived thousands of years before Jesus. And here they are on this mountain, alive, not dead, talking with Jesus, conversing with Jesus. And Peter realizes this is one of the greatest moments in human history. What am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to do? And what Peter does, as strange as it sounds to us, is he thinks in his mind, well, what have we done as Jewish people in history? Whenever something like this happens, we make a festival, we make a celebration. And there was one such celebration called the the, the, uh, Feast of Tabernacles, where they would set up tabernacles and tents and they would celebrate and remember God's story. And so what Essentially, what Peter's doing in this moment is, let's freeze this moment, because this is amazing and incredible, and I can't believe what I'm beholding, and let's celebrate it and, and, and tell stories about it and sing about it, and he's completely lost. He doesn't know what to do with what he's seeing. You ever had a mountaintop experience where it's just, it's so full of joy and awe that you just, you just want to freeze that moment and stay there forever? Unfortunately, that's not what this moment is about. It's not about something amazing, right? We're so prone as human beings to chase moments and exciting things, and, and we want to see God show up in these dramatic ways. But all of these things that happen, both in the story of God and even in our own lives when we have those moments, mountaintop experiences are meant to drive us to see something and to change and to keep moving. It's not about freezing the moment. It's about paying attention to what God is pointing to next, right? That the whole conversation that was occurring on that mountain was not about Elijah and Moses. It was about Jesus and what he was about to do. And the other thing is Peter doesn't realize Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are on that mountain to pay homage and honor to Jesus as their king, as the one who they followed. Right? And, but Peter's just thinking this is three religious guys getting together and having a conversation. He doesn't realize that Moses and Elijah are here. The two greatest moments in all of Jewish history are here, bowing down before the glorious king, Jesus. He misses the person. He misses the person of glory. So let's talk about the person of glory. The last couple of verses in this story, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Friends, we have a glory problem and we must be rescued by true glory and so we need to see the person of glory. We need to see the person of glory. In this moment of terror and confusion, right? They, they're lost, they don't know what's happening, they don't know what to do with it. And to make matters worse, a cloud overshadows the entire mountain. And all of a sudden a booming voice, which I can't even be fathom what that sounded like, speaks to them and says, this is my son, listen to him. Now again, just to give us reference for what it felt like for them, in Jewish history, the, God's presence was often signified by a cloud, it's called the Shekinah glory. It was when the cloud would descend in the temple. It was this, this image and this idea that they had of God. And here they are on a mountain, seeing literally Jesus, whose face has become brighter than the shining of the sun, and a cloud overshadows them. And what do their minds think? We're in the presence of God. The Shekinah glory is coming. And historically, what Jewish people believed is if you were in the midst of that, you were going to die. Because Moses, when he was on the mountain and this happened to him, what Moses wrote down in Exodus is that God said to Moses, you can't look at this. If you look at this, you're going to die. If you behold all my significance and my importance and my radiance, it will be too much for you and it will break you apart and you'll die. 
And so here are these three men on the mountain, terrified out of the mind, and all of a sudden they realize, this is God. We're going to die. We're going to die. And instead what happens is a voice calls out to them from this cloud and says, this is my son. Listen to him. They fall on their faces, terrified for their lives. They crumble and they collapse. They think it's their end. But God is pointing out to them in the midst of their terror, in the midst of their fear, Jesus. Look at Jesus. See my son who is here for you, who even in this moment where you're terrified and you're realizing how much smaller you are than me, look at the son who is here with you. Listen to him. Listen to his voice. Listen to his words. Do we listen to Jesus? Do we really listen to Jesus? Do we pay attention to the things that he says to us? In difficult situations, in taxing situations, in frightening situations, what about really exciting situations, good situations? Are we paying attention then? In, in all of the circumstances of our life, is Jesus' words important to us? Again, I have to admit that there are often situations in my life where I'm afraid, I'm struggling, I'm doubtful. My mind is not going to Jesus' words. I'm not making sure that I am spending time with him, reading his word, learning about him. Do you know that it's actually common now amongst churches in the United States that there are verses that we might assume everybody knows. Things like John 3.16, because they show up in football games. People have never heard them before in their life. They've never heard the words of Jesus. We've become a culture that assumes everybody has listened to Jesus. The truth is, people have not heard his voice in many parts of this country. They've never heard his words. They don't know what he said about them. They don't know what he said about himself. Because we're not listening to his son. We're not listening to Jesus. The three disciples have just become the first three people in human history not to be crushed like bugs in the glory of God. Here they are. You know what happens? This is Matthew's account of it, Matthew 17. He says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw none but Jesus only. There they are, terrified, afraid, overwhelmed. And there is Jesus, picking them up off their faces. They don't see Elijah anymore. They don't see Moses anymore. They just see the rabbi who loves them, cares about them, doesn't want them to be afraid, doesn't want them to be overwhelmed, doesn't want them to feel like they're about to be crushed. But he wants to see, show them the Father who is lifting them up. If you ask me what would God say to us today, if the audible voice of God appeared in this church, what would he say? I think he probably would say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Because when we listen to him, we see a God who lifts us up, a God who cares for us, who touches us. Those men right there in that moment, in the Shekinah glory, in this amazing moment, they would not have been thinking about a God who would want to touch them they would have been thinking about a God who's going to destroy them because they are unworthy. And what happens when they open their eyes? A God who wants to touch them. Who in their brokenness and their failings and their incompleteness says, I want to touch you. Get up. Stand up. Listen. I can be sure of this as a preacher. There's a lot of things that I wonder, what is God saying? What does God want us to talk about? What did he want us to preach? I know for a fact the one thing he wants us to preach is the truth that he wants to lift you up and care for you and touch you. 
and meet you wherever you're at. Perhaps this is why Peter writes in his own letter, he talks about this very account later in his life when he writes the letter of 2 Peter. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitness of his majesty when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter was writing that to a church who needed to be reminded of the God that lifts them up on the mountain. He, he wasn't just saying, hey, I was here on this mountain and this amazing thing happened. Peter is telling us later in his life, it changed me. I saw something different about God on that mountain. He wasn't just glorious and mighty and terrifying, though he is all of those things. He was also a God that knelt down and picked me up and loved me, and invited me to know him, and walk with him, and hear his voice. And he says, we have that more fully confirmed. Now, what he's saying is, now after Jesus' resurrection, after we saw all those things happen, we know even more that this is a God who loves us, and cares for us, and wants to pick us up, and walk with us. So the question becomes, why do we still live for lesser glories than that son who did that for us? Why are we spending so much time trying to find our hope in politics, trying to find our anchor in situations and in money and in relationships? Why are we chasing lesser glories when that son has made himself available to us? That's the question I ask in my own heart because I know I'm a much bigger sinner than all you guys out there. I don't know why I do that. Because I know this God. I know this one who appeared on the mountain. I've walked with him. I've seen these things. We have a glory problem. We aren't prepared for it. We don't understand it. We're terrified by it. But friends, the good news of the gospel, the message of Christianity is, despite all of those things, despite our glory problem, what direction is that glorious sun facing? It's toward us. It's for us. It's with us. Can you imagine for a moment if Jesus had Peter say what he said on the mountain about the tents? Can you imagine if he said, excuse me, the glory of God is falling from heaven. Can you please close your mouth? No, Jesus knew exactly what Peter was going to do. He took him up on the mountain because he knew he was going to say that. Jesus wanted him to see in his confusion and his brokenness, I need you to see that I'm for you, Peter. That even in your confusion, your brokenness, and your misunderstandings, and your doubts, and your fears, here I am for you, this glorious king coming for you. That was ultimately the whole reason for the whole transfiguration. He just told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. He tells them immediately after this, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And he wanted them to have a moment that they could hang on where they see the face of glory who was going to set them free. So they could remember this moment. There was a God who picked us up when we were on our faces and told us that he would be with us. So I'll finish just by sharing this quote with you guys. St. Augustine, a famous voice in church history, said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. The goal of the transfiguration isn't just to astound us. It isn't just so that I can stand here on a stage on Sunday and say, look at this incredible moment. Isn't it amazing? It is here to motivate us and to drive us towards the person of glory. 
It is to get us away from a Christless Christianity that's all about things that we do and ways that we try and make ourselves better and earn approval and towards a person who already has loved us and has given himself for us. It's so we can see the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of a God who is good and cares for us. I never used to see Jesus as glorious when I was a kid. I never used to see him as something beautiful. I used to see him as a taskmaster who was trying to take things away from me. I was so wrong. Jesus is a wondrous and beautiful king who loves me, loves you, and wants to bring greater glory in our lives than we can ever fathom. When we see him, when we hear his voice, when we listen to his words, we will find rest for our souls. So as we close this morning, this is what we're going to do because of that. Because we want to find rest for our souls is we're going to take communion with each other. Because this small little uh, thing that we do together is intended to show us the glory of God. When you come in, you should have received one of those cups. If you didn't, could you just raise your hand real quick and our ushers will come and bring one to you. Um, This is something that Jesus uh, said to his disciples when he was on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, when he was in the upper room with them right before his death, uh, he took bread and a cup at this Passover meal. And if we're going to listen to his words, we'll listen to these. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember who I am. Remember what I did for you. Remember why I came and walked with you. And so that's what we're going to do together as a church. This is something that we do every month because we want to remember. Because we want to remember the one who brings rest to our soul. So if you'd like to peel off that first layer, And take this. Let's remember Jesus who said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take this and eat this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him this morning. After that, he took a cup. You may not know this, but the the, would drink this cup every year at the Passover, not really seeing its true meaning. And Jesus gave it meaning that night because he picked it up and he said, this cup is part of a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. We drink this and we remember the God who by his blood has forgiven us and loved us. Let's drink it in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your great love for us that we remember when we take this bread and this cup. God, help us to see the God on the mountain this morning, the God who is glorious and good and radiant and beautiful and is worth giving our all to. God, I pray that you'd root out those places in our life where we've been living for lesser glories, living for things that are just not as significant and as good as you. Lord, I pray you'd find those hard places in our hearts where we have doubted to believe that you are good and show us that you are. Father, be at work in us as a church to make us into the people who love our neighbors as ourselves and who see your glory as the most wondrous and beautiful thing in all the earth so that the rest of the world might see it too. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. I'm so thankful for our worship team. They do an incredible job of leading us, don't they? They're amazing.
Hey, well, as we finish this morning, just a couple of reminders. First of all, if there's any way we can serve you, love you, connect with you, encourage you, please don't uh, leave without saying hi to someone, either at our welcome desk out there. If you are new, uh, we have a gift for you. We'd love to share that with you and get to know you better. And as a reminder, if you haven't gotten to fill out one of these yet, there should be plenty on the seats around you. Uh, even if you have... If you think you've given in your information before, if you could just write name, email, and then let us know whether you want updates from you. This is the best way for us to connect with you and get to know you uh, and reach out if we ever need to. Um, this is really important for us. So if you could do that and then drop it in the generosity boxes on you, we are. But let me finish just with this benediction. Would you pray this with me? Father, I thank you for the son who is glorious, who you have given to us, who appeared on that mountain. Father, you told us he is your beloved son and asked us to listen to him. God, I pray that we would listen to him, that we would walk with him and live for his greater glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. One last reminder as well, we do have our meet and greet. It's gonna be in here in about 10 or 15 minutes. So if you wanna stay, uh, we'll have time to ask questions of our staff, get to know us, uh, get to know one another a little bit as well. So you can stick around for that. Be blessed, guys.